From the Cervera Newsroom in sunny Miami, welcome to the Miami Real Estate Podcast, your home for expert insight on all things Miami real estate. I'm your host, Omar DeWint. Let's get started. Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Omar DeWint. I'm joined today by the interim dean of the Florida International School of Business. That's Dr. William G. Hardin. Uh, Dr. Hardin, how are you? Uh, great. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. We'll talk about Miami. We'll talk about real estate. We'll talk about business. Yes. Uh, all those things are, you know, what we do here. Absolutely. And did I get your title correct at the front? Right. Yes. I'm the interim dean of FIU Business, and I was the founding director of the Hollow School of Real Estate. Uh, and I've had numerous other kind of uh, managerial, uh, fun administrative jobs in between. So Excellent. Well, um, we're, we're happy to have you here. It's been a, actually a long time coming. We've been trying to coordinate this even since pre-COVID, I think, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but specifically, we wanted to have your insights as we talk about, like you said, real estate, business, but also education, which is a sort of uh, interconnecting glue and is, is, in, is connected um, into real estate in many ways. And one of the most I guess, obvious ways for our our audience of real estate professionals and, and the consumers they serve, and that's through property values, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you recently, you and your team recently commissioned a study that was actually looking at charter schools, right, and charter schools in general, and you had some interesting findings there. So I wanted to start our conversation by giving you the opportunity to sort of introduce that study to us in the overview. Sure. Um I think uh, everyone's well aware that there is a correlation between value and uh, the schools uh, to which people are assigned. In essence, the school assignments based on location, based on neighborhood, based on city. Um, Being in Florida, we have the opportunity to do a little bit more investigation because we have very large school districts. We have the Miami-Dade School District. We have Broward County. We have countywide uh, school districts that literally have millions of people living there and literally hundreds of thousands of students. So within our tri-county area, we have about the equivalent number of students as in the entire state of wow. South, South Carolina, for example. So it allows us to be a little bit better at how we do things. Uh, I'm going to compare that to, let's say, in Chicago. Chicago has approximately 34 independent school districts in the metro area. So everyone's a different school district with a different set of rules. We're all under one system by county with the same set of rules. So from uh, a research standpoint, it allows us to study more things because we have, uh, in essence, a homogenous regulatory environment, whereas other places, every little city is different. So by living here, uh, we, we benefit. The other thing that we have here is that Florida historically has been a supporter of charter schools at the state level. So a large percentage of students attend charter schools in Miami-Dade and Broward counties. So that, again, allows us to study that uh, because we have enough diversity in socioeconomics in every kind of factor. That allows us to look at basically the price to education. Mm-hmm. Uh, question that everyone has. Sure. And the other thing that's beautiful about, from a research standpoint, is that in the state of Florida, each school gets a letter grade, A, 
B, C, D, F, okay? And that letter grade is used by the real estate community when they're marketing products or marketing homes or marketing, you know, new, new developments. So it's part of what's used sure. uh, to signal quality. So the question then is, what's the price effect? What's the value effect? So, of course, we were able to confirm typically the, the correlation, the better the school, uh, the, that there's a price premium. Uh, but we wanted to take that and also look at the charter side. Because the charter side is about choice. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily about quality. It's about choice of education. It's about learning uh, techniques. It's about control and governance mm-hmm. as much as it is the quality side. So people choose a charter school for one of two reasons. One, that's the better school of the options they have. Or two, it teaches or it has some type of programming that they benefit from or they want their child to benefit from. Mm-hmm. So it allows us to look at those two factors. So the question is, is it simply the governance structure or is it um, the fact that maybe in one area you have a charter school that's an A-rated school, but the school that my child would be assigned to would be a B or a C level. So, and in that case, okay, so in that case, would the 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 charter schools grade offset, let's say, the B or C of the right? So, so what we find is that the quality factor is always there. Um, so the better the school the school that that you have, uh, the the price premium will follow that. When we look at the charters, what we find is where the charters really show up. If you just say, is a charter going to signal mm-hmm. a p- perhaps premium? Sure. Well, it signals a premium if the charter school is a better rated school than the assigned school. Okay. Okay. So if I have a charter school that's an A and it's competing in, a, in an area where all the other non-charter schools are A, there is no real price effect with the exception that A has a, an effect over B. So mm-hmm. the higher quality, the higher quality um, or rated schools, I'm not going to say rated their quality, higher rated schools, there is the price premium. So when you look at the charter schools, you you find the premium over above anything else when they're just like everything else, when they're competing against the the ones that are rated less, let's say a C or a B. Now, why is that important? It's easier to create a charter school than to create a school within the normal guidelines for Broward County and or Miami-Dade County. Okay, I can be a sponsor of a charter school. I can have different their nonprofits that sponsor uh, and create the charter schools. There are charter schools that are created based on different programs like construction. Uh, so that gives me the flexibility to go in there and create a charter school, perhaps in an area mm-hmm. that doesn't have the highest rated schools. And that might benefit the area. Increase the... So um, let's talk about, you know, the buzzword that people may or may not want to talk about, and that's gentrification. Sure. Okay, so part of the way this could work in that scenario is someone could go go in there, a group, under the auspices of the state, which allows charter schools, following their rules, to create a charter school in an area that may be undergoing gentrification where there's been little investment in the public school system because there haven't been children there or or just it's an older area, it's being revitalized, and they can do it much more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So what we wanted to do is, in essence, look at, is it simply the charter school or is it the quality? So the truth is the quality, quality is the dominant one, and then the charter school just has the value when it's really associated with a, with a, uh, with a lower uh, rated school. Interesting. So, so the so the, and the beauty of the charter is it's easier, it's it's quicker, it's easier. Not saying it's very easy. We can easily set up charter school, and so you see that in some of the new developments uh, where mm-hmm. they're actually building charter schools into those developments. And so, as you were doing your study, uh, were there any areas that came to mind for you that that you thought, hey, if I were looking to um, you know, of an area that was prime for this sort of um, the in, injection of a charter school to help increase the value or that maybe was underserved. Were there any uh, well, neighborhoods we, I, that jumped we out? We didn't look at that, but I know some of the people who were in who were in the charter school arena uh, have real estate backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So if you talk to some of them, part of what they're doing is actually staking out areas, providing the infrastructure for the schools mm-hmm. because in essence they lease the buildings to the charter schools. So you see that happening uh, and there's a benefit to that community uh, at times. Uh, but I think it plays into a bigger kind of policy issue sure. uh, within education because people want to talk about charters versus non-charters versus traditional schools. And I think, uh, you know, what, what the takeaway would be is, you know, you can improve the values or the tide, the correlation to values by improving a school or a set of schools, whether it's via charter or whether it's being run by the typical county school system. It's simply the quality. Sure. It's simply the rating. So it's not necessarily one or the other, whether it's what you learn in the charter schools or how it's taught, although that's kind of part of the political component. Uh, is to is to do that. I think in the bigger picture, what we show is if you want to benefit the real estate community or if you're looking to see what benefits the real estate community, the number one thing is is to have the quality schools because the quality schools are going to attract people willing to pay a slight premium to be in those areas. Mm-hmm. So the question is, this beyond our study is, do you have to have charter schools for that, or can the traditional school systems, in the way they work, provide those same outcomes? And what what would be your your speculation on that? Well, I will speculate and uh, uh, pretty quickly and say there's a different level of agility sure. between the two types of schools. Okay, so you're talking about uh, a large school system versus perhaps an operator of a charter school, mm-hmm. which has some financial backing, but is very agile. They're not looking at what's what's happening for 300,000 kids. They're trying to say what happens for this elementary charter school that we just started that has 400 students or 500 or some number. So you have a little bit more agility, which allows you to plan more quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's simply an alternative. And I think part of the way it works today is that it, it does um, – provide experimentation, agility. It provides the opportunity to do things more quickly. Uh, I think we'll figure out over time whether that's sustainable. Sure. Um, and, you know, we're looking, we didn't really look at, at really the policy and where it goes. And I mean, that's a subsequent study we're, we're doing. Um, well, speaking but, of... But, and, I wanted, and we wanted to kind of stay away from the kind of the politics of, of the course. issue. 
not because we don't want to address it, but because the, the question is, is it one type of school or the other? Is it A or is it B types of school? And the answer is, what no. What it is is providing the quality school, no matter what methodology or what distribution channel, to provide that, mm-hmm. that, that school choice or that, that school uh, uh, outcome. I like it. So the quality is key. So the quality, what, what drives it is quality. So if someone says the charter school is driving the value, I'm going to say, is it driving the value or is it driving the value because the schools with, with it competes directly, those ones that my, my child would be assigned to are not performing as well as this one does. Sure. And I would say our study shows that it's really the comparison in whether that was a charter or, 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 or a regular traditional school if it's having those outcomes and is meeting those outputs demanded by the state, then it, the market doesn't care. Sure. Now, there might be people who care about what goes on in charter school versus a tra- traditional school mm-hmm. from an educational output standpoint. Sure. But from a pure real estate standpoint, it's quality dominates. Yeah. Quality is the, is the you know. I mean, yeah. If you, people want to be in the A schools, they want to be in the ones that are traditionally ranked high. Uh, and that's what they've been kind of taught to understand because – the way those rankings work is they take about 12 different factors and create a letter grade. Mm-hmm. So it's easy for people to understand. Sure. So they say this is A versus B versus C. Right. And, uh, and like you mentioned, the, the state is better of Florida. Than B. Right. A, a, is, a a, a is always better than B. No, it's right. a state ranking system. Yeah, which makes it easier for... Yeah, so every, every, so every school that's non-private, every public or charter school has a, has a rating. Sure. And uh, it's interesting you mentioned at the top, I, I had never thought of that um the fact that the these huge these three counties the tri-county area with the large population of charter schools how it that from a research standpoint makes it easier than in a area like you mentioned chicago where there's a ton of independent right. districts or because then you factor in different property tax rates different millage rates uh-huh. you have to factor in different jurisdictions and sources of governance sure so you know, it's kind of a, the beauty of living here and, and seeing that is allows us to study things that people talk about, but we're, we have the scale, so yeah. scale benefits. Of course. And unified school districts that allow both types of school allow us to have enough of each, each type to have a true comparison as opposed to, you know, there are hundred schools and there are three that are charters. I think I can't remember the exact number uh, because it keeps growing over the last 10 or 12 years in the study, but I believe it's over around 20% of the students, uh, maybe 15 to 20%, I would have to verify that, of students uh, in Miami-Dade go to a charter school. That, that is interesting. Um, now, let me ask you, with with regards to the study, was there, so quality was the clear, you know, The quality uh, is the denomin- clear winner, denominator. The, the yeah. winner, but was there anything in the study that or any findings that surprised you, that intrigued you, or maybe you weren't expecting? Well, what the study kind of signaled to us for, for what we're working on now is to look at can we determine the factors over time that were apparent when a charter school was opened. Okay. What so, do you mean by that? So, so you know, a charter school has a, a group that sponsors it of some form. Mm-hmm. So, when did, what how did they select where they were going to go and when mm-hmm. okay so did they select based on what what demographics or what what type of components did they see out there that 
Uh, I mean, some of these are chains. I mean, some of these are, are independent, one-off ones. But what factors were there when someone said, okay, I need to open a charter school in this location, and this is kind of what I'm trying to address? Okay. Was it a performance gap? Was it simply... Uh, more people moving in because we had more real estate development in that area and more children and mm -hmm. more families moving in. So what were those determinants that kind of triggered that educational group to decide we're going to do charter schools in this area? And what do you uh, suspect might be the findings? Well, I, I think our theory would be that it's, it's a combination of um, – different demographics moving in that are at core advocates of public education, whether that's via a charter mechanism or the traditional model versus uh, a private school. So what you find is if someone really is high income or, or wealthy, they always have the option to opt out for private school. And in South Florida, we have, of course, uh, the parochial schools. We have a whole bunch of different choices there. Um, so I think you know, what we would find is it's kind of in a certain income range where that drives it, which is uh, it's people who, you know, who have a certain level of education, certain level of income, but they may not have sufficient income in essence to opt out of even worrying about the public school system mm -hmm. because we have whole areas uh, in, in throughout the United States where you, you have people in, in neighborhoods that by and large can opt out. They have enough income and wealth. They just, if the school isn't what they want, they simply just go to a private school. Mm -hmm. Well, the typical person, the typical family can't make that choice. Now, some of the wealthy people who come to South Florida, they make that choice every day. Mm -hmm. So I think what we would find is it's an, it's an income area that's probably well above average or median income, but not one of the outlier areas. Sure. Okay. Because well, I think the outlier areas already have choice. If yeah. They want it. Now, now they may not want to pay for it because private schools, of course, <laughs> are expensive, but, you know, if, if choice is what they want, they can. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to uh, Dr. William Harden here, the dean of FIU School of Business or interim dean of FIU School of Business, um, talking about an interesting charter school study that uh, he and his team just commissioned. So, Dr. Harden, let's keep it going and uh, move beyond uh, the, I guess, what you consider, is that primary school, charter schools? Well, or? It goes all the way K through 12. K know? through 12. Okay. So, and um, going back to our real estate and some fun Why Miami rankings, I know U.S. News and World Report has had our school systems, I think at every level, uh, top or top ranking for the last few years in a row, including our higher education right. and co uh, at least university ranked number one, right. yeah, university level for, for college costs. So tell me like your big picture view of our educational system and how it's performing. And then let's uh, move over to FIU because I know you guys are doing some industry leading yeah. stuff over so, there. So overall, the state of Florida has, I believe, either 49th or 50th lowest tuition rates for undergraduate education in the United States. So if you look at it, it from any metric, mm -hmm. from simply the cost to the value prospect, because the value prospect is staggering, mm -hmm. the tuition at FIU is about $6,200 per year mm -hmm. for a world-class education right. with people 
who are scholars, people who are educators, who are known throughout the globally mm-hmm. for, for what they know, what the research they do. So within the state of Florida, we have a, a staggering uh, value prospect for people who go to our public high schools of higher ed throughout the state, not just FIU, but, but all the schools. Mm-hmm. Um, that long-term is a competitive advantage because it provides more opportunity for everyone to become uh, what they want to be, to study, to become whatever they think they can do and not be highly indebted. Mm-hmm. So FIU is predominantly uh, or has a large portion of our students that are first-generation students. We have a large percentage that are uh, Pell Grant eligible students. These are people who come in and they really transform themselves and perhaps their families by coming to a school like FIU. Mm-hmm. One of our highest rankings that we have that we don't really talk about is related to bringing uh, people into our mix and actually having them be successful. And the way they measure that is the change in, in kind of household income. So students come from a household income that's in the, let's say, bottom quartile, and then they, and they in essence, graduate up to a household that's in the top quartile. So why does that matter? It matters because we're basically an immigrant community. We bring people in from all over the world. They're all over the socioeconomic spectrum, but we provide that opportunity for everyone. So we're one of the schools, top schools in in the United States, who provide that outcome. So when you think about what is transformative, the transformative is you come in and all of a sudden you, you know, you, you figure out, you learn something, and it allows you to take a career path that provides access to, to almost other, any other alternative choice simply because you have a better ability to pay for it, to earn money, to, to help your family, mm-hmm. whether they're uh, your parents who may not have been, been able to become educated or whether they're in another country or whether you're just any, any type of thing. I mean, one of the things that, that people forget is that Florida is a new state. Miami is a new state. I always have a trick question. I say, what's the largest city by population in 1890 in Florida? (laughs) And the answer is Key West. Okay. Okay. Right, because Miami didn't exist. Miami didn't really even exist. I mean, so you, you look around and you look at cities and countries that have hundreds and thousands of years of history. Mm-hmm. And then you look at Miami and you say, what's, what's really the most important dynamic thing about Miami? Uh, and it's that it's a new city. That means we don't have legacy issues that are problems, that it might have been problems for 100 years or 120 uh, with regard to infrastructure and things like that. It means that we're innovated. It means that we're not wedded uh, to the way things were. Now, that can be a negative because we don't have the institutions that other cities and countries have to support philanthropic activities, education, mm-hmm. things like that. But it means that we're kind of always thinking about the next new thing. Sure. So the beauty of that is that FIU has created itself. FIU has gone from just an idea about 50 years ago mm-hmm. to what is called an R1 school, a research one school, meaning one of the top research-oriented schools in the United States. Wow. It is one of the largest schools. That's all great. Large is good. Big is good. But what FIU's done is actually even more important is it's big and it's good. It has high value and high quality. The hardest thing to do in education is to have a lot of students and still be good, still have a value prospect. Because we can always be good if, we, if we're if we elite and we only have a couple students. Mm-hmm. Okay, the hard part is to take uh, with the resources we have 
and provide that environment that allows people to succeed uh, kind of on a, on a shoestring in a sense uh, compared to many of, of the schools that have been around in the U.S. for hundreds of years. So, you know, just like Florida, FIU's new, people are willing to take a chance. They're willing to innovate. I go and visit other deans, and, and I'm just thankful I'm not, you know, some of these are name brand schools. And you go, <laughs> would you want to be the dean here? And the answer is no because they're just so caught up in the legacies mm-hmm. of what they were doing that they're not thinking about what they should be doing. Yeah, I'll give you an example. I'm not going to mention any names, but these two business schools both consider themselves to be top 20 or top 25 business schools. They did not even offer online master's level classes until COVID. Wow. Okay, I'm sorry, FIU's been doing that for over 22 years <laughs> in the College of Business. Okay, so when these schools try and say, we're the center of innovation and creativity, well, that may be in what, in, in what the students do, but if you look at how they deliver the product, I'm sorry. Yeah. We've been doing that at FIU for 22 years. So the problem I have at some of these conferences is I have to kind of kind of look away and, and, and not say anything. Sure. Because, you know, let them have their great story about how they Overcame what they did COVID during and COVID yeah. and this or that. I'm going, well, you know, we were already doing all that, so there's nothing new here. We just kind of pivoted over here um, because we already had those things that you guys didn't have. Uh, so I, I, I get a kick out of that because, you know, by being a young city, by being a growing university, we've had to basically innovate from day one, mm-hmm. which is no one's giving us a big pot of money saying you have unlimited resources. It's here's what you have, but here's here's what your mission is. So you need to get on that mission, and the mission is X. The mission is to improve your four-year graduation rate, is to have your six-year graduation rate as one of the top urban schools in the U.S., which is where we are now. But we're not, we're not going to throw, a, you know, you, that's just what you're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to give you extra money for that. We're not going to give you tons of resources. We're going to say that's part of your mission. If someone comes in here, our goal should be to have them graduate in four years, uh, maybe a little bit longer, and definitely in six years. And we've actually, uh, in the College of Business, our four-year graduation rate's gone from 28% to about 65% over wow. the last four years. 65% is comparable to most the top urban schools that have similar demographics. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why is that important? Well, you get done, you get educated, you get your job, you get your career started. Into the workforce. You, and you, know, you don't borrow more money. You know, it's, it's transformational for that, for that kid. Now, uh, you know, do we have a lot more to do? Yeah. But uh, I think everyone who's at FIU and FIU business actually is co- committed to that mission. That's what is, that's what's exciting. It is exciting. It's I mean, exciting I mean, to it's hear more you. Fun. I mean, you know, that or just go, well, and we're doing the same old thing that we did yesterday and last year and whatever. That's kind of boring. Yeah. It's, it's excited like, to hear you say that and your passion, you know. It's kind of like coming it. here and being on the real estate. You know, Miami is, a lot of people like real estate in Miami. Well, mm-hmm. literally there are billion-dollar projects going up every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago before COVID, I was uh, meeting a, a graduate of ours who's a, a senior a CEO of a major uh, real estate firm in New York. And he asked me, he goes, well, tell me about these two projects. And I go, well, what do you need to know? And he goes, well, we don't know anything about these projects. And they were a couple of condominium projects, probably in the couple hundred million dollar development mm-hmm. range. And I said, well, what is there to know? He goes, well, we, 
if someone's doing a $300 million condo, we're supposed to know because we're New York. I mean, because we're the financial capital of the United States, we're supposed to know. And I said, well, basically, both those projects are being financed with capital out of Latin America. They don't need to come to New York. They don't need your expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of these were, this was, both of these were pre-sale sure. uh, models. Right. And, Subsequent to the to the meltdown, so you know it's, it was you know basically the international, the the, the pre-sale model, mm-hmm. and so they could build a couple hundred million dollar projects without going to the big money institutional right. players. I mean, literally, that's what we spent an hour and a half on, and, and I was going, well, that's what you need to come down here and learn about, which is they don't need to go to New York and take a haircut yeah. from the intermediaries in New York. And how how they feel about that? Well, you know, they it's kind of. I mean, they're. I mean, you're talking to people. They, they, they have a Miami connection, so sure. they get it. And and this individual owns a property down here, and I'm sure that when they retire, they'll probably become a resident of the state of Florida. And then their kids. Um, uh, well, I guess their grandkids. Well, I don't know their grandkids. Won't. I don't. They, they may never have to work. Who knows? All right. Um, but 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 it is that component down here. We are doing things. Yeah, uh, I mean we're innovating and we're innovating. We're vertical. Um, vertical means we need more capital to build any any project than a horizontal, you know, subdivision something like that. So it kind of aggregates capital people. It aggregates people in in the in the architectural world, in, in the design world, mm-hmm. uh, because people are are putting up like real dollars. Sure, that they can spend on that. So, sure, um, it's exciting. It is exciting, and it's exciting what you all have accomplished and. Um, you know, in the short, a relative short time, uh, big and good, which is, I think I never thought about it in that perspective in terms of how we evaluate universities. But tell me about the, um, you know, with your success rate in graduation. And, and as we mentioned, it's a, a lower state tuition, 6,200, right. I think, per year. Um, you've increased your graduation rate, which means kids are getting out of college quicker and, right. and with less debt. Uh, one of the things that where I want to close the conversation, you and I talked about this off mic, was the importance of the workforce, talent in the workforce, talent in the city. Yeah. And um, how sometimes Miami gets a knock, as as you know, detractors like to say we don't have the talent for the workforce here. We, you and I disagree. Right. I want to hear your thoughts well, on that. I think. I mean, you and I disagree well, with, with them. With them, yeah. <laughs> but but here's what I say: we have multiple pipelines of talent. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when people look for talent, the first thing they do is they go where they got the last person, mm-hmm. whether she was just hired or he was just hired a couple of years ago. They know where they get the traditional people that come into their business. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, if you come to Miami, you probably need to open your eyes because instead of that one avenue, there are going to be five or 10 different channels. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be based on education. It's going to be based on large part on perhaps on uh, language skills. It's going to be based on a different set of skill sets, but they all are building the skill sets that can be applied, whether it's high tech, business services, finance, law, et cetera, et cetera. And perhaps are even more valuable because they're because they tend to be uh, multicultural, multilingual. Uh, when we started the real estate program years ago, the master's program, we used to laugh. We was like, we're, you know, we're multilingual, and they go, "What do you mean? We have, we have people who speak Portuguese, we have people who speak French, Spanish, we have people who speak real estate, people people who speak institutional real estate, people who know the terms for finance that are required." Mm-hmm. All those are different types of languages. They're different ways that we look at the world. And so if you kind of look at Miami, we have all these overlapping one another. 
So I would really say if anyone has any kind of inclusivity, any ability to look at people from from wherever they come from, Miami has the talent. Mm-hmm. Now, are they from the same pipeline that maybe they came from when you started this business or when you looked in, in Atlanta or, or Boston? Probably not. They're probably a broader pool of people who can do the skill set. And you just need to, to, to get over the fact that um, – the, the pool is going to be a little bit different. I mean, we're from everywhere here. So if you, if you have to come be from one place, you're going to have a problem here because, right. Because we're, I mean, we're from every country. We're from all but, over. And probably better suited for this post COVID world where the globalization and you can work from anywhere. And so you were mentioning earlier, you know, the ability, let's say to speak with uh, a developer or coder or, you know, business in, an, in another country, but have that language right, have that understanding of the cultural connection, you're going to be better off as a member of the talent workforce here than I mean, because in somewhere part else. Of what, what, what is holding tech back, mm-hmm. okay, it's not the tech side, it's the application side, it's the interaction with business side, it's how do I take certain skill sets that might benefit, you know, whether it's fintech or real tech or different areas, the only way we're successful in that business is to really know the business that we're going into or that we're servicing. And we may be disruptive or we may simply making make it more efficient. Um, so the hard thing that the, all the tech areas especially have is to merge the tech skills with the business skills with the marketing and the applied skills, which is, yeah, that's a great product. Okay, but how does it really work or how do we actually get it to work? How do, And then once we sell that product, how do we manage the that account? Mm-hmm. And guess what? If that account is in... Brazil, we need someone who speaks Portuguese. If they're in, you know, most of the other countries in Latin America, they need to speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you need to have that ability to get with the people who are using the services, the technology, the software that you're creating. Because guess what? I just got a new phone just the other day. Mm-hmm. I had my old phone for eight years. Okay, it's taken me three <laughs> days to figure out how to get my Garmin to sync with this phone. Okay, yeah. and, and I'm not. But you can probably take great pictures. But I'm not a, yeah, I can. But I'm not a technophobe. But what I'm saying is, those are the issues that come up. People sure. want to pick up the phone. I'm in business. I run my business. You know, I might speak fluent English, um, but I might be more comfortable if I speak my native language. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to pick somebody up and I'm going to call in there. And if that person is bilingual, we can have a better rapport. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that young person could speak Spanish, Portuguese, English, know about coding, know about how the software works know about how it fits in together um, and add a lot of value mm-hmm. simply because that's what they've been doing their whole lives. Sure. You know, that's what you do down here. Uh, you do that and you make dreams happen and then, you I know, mean, things you, come true you down fun here. And, you know, Miami's a good place to be. And I think people are realizing that. They um, are. They are. And I think especially now more so in, in this uh, since COVID. So mm-hmm. we got to keep spreading the megaphone. Dr. Mm-hmm. Harden, I want to get final thoughts from you because I know you have uh, an appointment this afternoon. I want to get you to um, just close us out here with sort of final thoughts on um, the status of education here in, let's say, the state of Florida. Are there any things that you would like to see changed or differently uh, or just do more of in, in the years to come? Well, I think we need to continue to support education. I think education is the bedrock. Human capital is the bedrock of everything that, that's, that's good, uh, whether it's being able to make decisions for a family or for a country or for a policy or for a com- company. Uh, it's, a, it's our ability to think. It's our ability to synthesize information. And we're getting more and more information now than ever. 
some of it's uh, good information, some of it's bad information, some of it's we don't know where it comes from. Okay, so so we need to do that because the future is all based on, as you mentioned, uh, the ability perhaps to live and work where we want to. So the question is, if you were thinking about where do you want to live and work, where would your family want to live and work? Well, it would have to be an inclusive area. It would have to have a certain maybe lifestyle. It would have to have an education system. It would have to have all those things that we check off the box, which is what is the quality of life? Mm-hmm. And the quality of life for most people starts with the basic ability to live and work and to, and to have my family educated so that they can, in essence, you know, move forward with whatever they choose to do. So I think we, we lose sight of the big picture when we don't put – uh, creating, maintaining, and investing in human capital right at the top. Mm-hmm. Now, yes, I'm in education, but I've worked in business. I've done other things. I will tell you, having a workforce or having a workforce that can be trained is essential uh, to business, and it's uh, essential to creating wealth, is create, creating jobs, creating opportunity. So we need to do that. I think the state of Florida is committed to that. I think we've done well. Um, you know, just look at the state system in Florida. We have some excellent, you know, we have, oh, we're so much better than people think we are in the state of Florida. Well, I'll just put it that way. <laughs> I mean, people, you know, when I was growing up, you go to Florida, what? To visit your grandparents. Go to Disney World. Well, when mm-hmm. I was growing up, Disney World wasn't even built yet. Okay, so, <laughs> but as a child, it was built. So you would go do that. Um, you would go visit maybe your family who was in the citrus business or, or doing something like that. Now you come down here because we have all those businesses, plus we have high tech, plus mm-hmm. we have fintech, plus we have healthcare, plus we have a business environment that is very attractive to firms that can be where they want to be. Sure. Okay. Yes, it's great, Silicon Valley, but Silicon Valley is, is untenable for the average employee, even if they're making $250,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you take, you only get 200000 in Miami, but you live a lot better. Now, the problem is for Miami is that whether that Miami is still inexpensive for many global cities and some of the major cities in the U.S., but it's still expensive relative to probably about 70 or 80 percent of the U.S. Yeah. So we're creating an affordability issue that everybody's aware of with regard to housing. But I think I think we're smart enough somehow to figure that out. I mean, I think we're we're enough pro-business and we, enough smart people who are going to get on that. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, we'll get there. But but I think we, we'll get there. Um, and I think certain parts of Florida are not as costly as South Florida. And maybe, I mean, people may not want to think about it, but maybe Miami becomes a little bit more expensive, and you know that's just the way it is uh, mm-hmm. because of um, uh, geography as much as anything else. So, you know, what do you need? As, as my father told me one time when I was a kid, he said, well, the only thing you're ever going to get from me is an education. <laughs> That's the only thing I'll guarantee you, which is I'm going to make sure you're educated. And if you're educated and you can't do anything with that, then that's on you. It's not on me. That's true. So if I'm the state of Florida and I make sure that you have the opportunity to be educated, then it's not on me any further on that. It's on you to take that education and make the state a better place.
I like it. We're going to leave it there. And this is a great place to get a good education and make the state and uh, country and the world a better place. Ladies and gentlemen, this was a conversation with Dr. William Harden, interim dean of the Florida International University School of Business. Dr. Harden, thanks for being here. You guys are listening to the Miami Real Estate Podcast. I'm Omar DeWint. Until next time, uh, folks, remember that here in Miami, the future is always bright. Take care. From all of us here in Miami, where the future is always bright. Until next time. Thank you.